Welcome everyone to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. Today I'm joined by Julia Sherman, LTA partner at Robio, Nora Buhakainen, talent manager at Nitro Games, Sinan Sabir, principal talent acquisition specialist at King, and also Michelle Simon, founder at Pixel Talent, who's ex-King, Robio, and half the gaming industry. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. So, in terms of today's topic, it's challenges in the recruitment industry. I'm going to first let everyone introduce themselves. First, I'll start with Nora. Can you please introduce yourself? Sure thing. Hello, I'm Nora. Nora Buhakainen from Nitro Games, and I'm a talent manager. I handle here at Nitro, everything related to employer branding and recruitment. Nice to meet you all. Lovely. And Michelle. Hi, everyone. Yep, my name is Michelle and I am the founder of Pixel Talent. Um, as Harry kindly said, I've worked at lots of different uh, game studios over the years. I've been in games for nine years now. Worked for King, Rovio, Jagex, Bossa, Sharp Mob, Trail Mix. Most recently, a very small startup, Village Studio, they're um, ex-Rovio peeps that have set that up. Um, I've worked in lots of other industries throughout my career, uh, management consultancy, retail, uh, digital design. Um, but yeah, games is my home. I'm most comfortable here. I um, love the people. Fantastic. And Julia. Hi, nice meeting you. I'm Julia Schelmer, a TA partner at Rovio Sweden today. I uh, have been in recruitment for the last eight years, uh, very new in gaming, just uh, over the last year has been in fintech before, mainly as a tech recruiter, also focusing on tech here, but doing a bit of everything as we are not extremely huge. Great. And finally, Sinan. Hello, everyone. I am Sinan, and I have been in the games industry for the past five years now. Uh, been at Paradox Interactive, been an old colleague of Julia at at Rovio, and I'm now currently at King. Uh, been working in recruitment overall since 2014. Uh, and in my free time, I do a fair amount of climbing and watching Netflix. Don't we all? Lovely. So I'll kick us off. Nora, could you please ask your question and the context behind it? Yes, thank you. Uh, because I'm an industry newbie, uh, uh, okay, I have been doing uh, recruitment and sales for past almost 15 years, but uh, never before in the gaming. I have been in the gaming industry now nine months. So I would like to hear your thoughts and possible uh, experiences on the matter. Is recruitment same regardless of the industry? What are your thoughts and comments on on that one maybe julia could you start thank you 
I think I'm a bit in the same spot in terms of experience in the gaming industry. I've just joined uh, gaming uh, last year, so I've seen other things uh, before uh, industry, traditional uh, heavy production, but also fintech and IT companies. I would say in terms of recruitment, the challenges are the same regardless of what we are looking for. And the main ones are if it's a niche role or looking for specific senior talent, that would be very tricky regardless of where the industry is. I would say gaming in that sense is equally niche, especially if we go as deep as looking into separately PC, console, mobile, but inside mobile also lots of different genres. Do we want specifically slingshot games, match three games or RPG or whatever it might be? One thing that makes it more exciting to hire in gaming is I think education and past background is a bit more relaxed if you compare to a lot of different industry. Because in games, what I've seen at least so far is passion for games, dedication, kind of a lot of hobby projects, extra work, extra things that you just do because you're passionate about the industry, passionate about the product is something that weighs equally much as the right background in a lot of in a lot of roles another thing like one more point is very high loyalty is in employees in a gaming industry if i at least compare the traditional tech uh, companies you know that a lot of people grow inside the company and what was super amazing to see in Rovi is that a lot of people celebrate 10 years anniversary almost on a monthly basis i would say which is an indicator that people really grow and progress and have a lot of exciting time inside one employer. Sinan, what do you think? Um, I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of loyalty to kind of stay within games. And I feel like there are, and this might be my, my, my subjective kind of observation, but I feel like generally, I feel that a lot of people that go into game, I feel like they seldom leave game. Um, it's, it's a fun industry to be in overall, I believe. And I think that um i think that from from what i've seen and and you know during during the years that i've been in in the games i'd say that recruitment is going to be pretty similar regardless of the company that you're in you know you're going to want to have your processes where you have you know these you know certain areas that you want to assess where i've seen a difference when it comes to the games industry is that I feel like it might be a bit more of a close-knit circle in the sense that I I seldom remember having a chat with a hiring manager where where games industry experience isn't, you know, a, a very hot topic or something that they really want to see in a candidate. Uh, granted, like my, my experience of recruitment outside of the games industry is fairly limited, but my, my impression of outside the industry is very much that you know there's whilst there is interest in having people who work with similar things it's seldom the fact that it's like they have to come from our industry um so i'd say that that is kind of that's my observation uh, uh michelle would you say that you agree with this yeah i'm reflecting everything you're saying actually i think the process is similar um where you have to have rigid processes in place and structured processes and interviews and um, but I think when you're going out to networks within games, it's a very small industry in that respect. And a lot of people know each other. And that's great for referrals sometimes as well. 
Um, but you'll often get people saying, hey, do you know this guy? What do you think of him? And there's a lot of back chat that goes on in the industry. So that's something to be aware of. I agree with having the close-knit teams as well. Um, it's like a family environment within game studios. And I think that makes it more challenging because everybody's got to obviously make have fun and make fun. You're making games. So if you have somebody that rubs somebody up the wrong way in a game studio, it's going to be more apparent. So getting that culture fit right is really important. But at the same time, we want to also, there's a lot of um, need to have diverse teams. And then that's getting that culture right when there's actually diversity in a team, different thinking and and how you get over that challenge. But I think we're going to come on to that later as well. But um, I mean, I heard somebody, somebody say the other day that the games industry is bigger than the TV and film industry put together. Um, it's a massive industry, but it doesn't ever really feel like that when you work in games. It actually feels quite small. And and I think that's the thing about it being quite close-knit. It's very different experience. Obviously, I worked at Tesco, which is a, the UK's biggest retailer, and that was a very, very different environment. Um, I think as well, it depends whether you're hiring into what area of the business. So if you're looking at marketing and finance or some of the support functions, that's going to be quite different to people actually working in game development studios where you've got artists and developers and more of the creative types as well so um i think when you're it, when you're hiring into corporate functions there's a lot of similarities with different businesses yeah yeah thank you thank you um i will add a few comments on my behalf on my huge nine months experience on the gaming uh i think there there are some similarities in recruitment across the industries but uh, uh in my opinion i don't know if it's more industry-based thing or company-based uh because i think cultural norms and company culture can vary so much between for example this very in- innovative and uh, relaxed game industry uh, where we are to a super rigid and restricted some other industries for for example like uh, finances law sales where I come from uh, gaming companies may have more and uh, in my opinion have more laid-back creative culture what while financial institutions have a more formal and structured culture. And of course, the, uh, this can uh, impact the types of candidates who are attracted to each industry and their, so, and their recruitment strategies used to appeal to them. That are, those are my opinions about the matter. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, how about... Yeah. Go ahead. I think Julia was first, so let, let's go for Julia. Yeah, cool. So I just had a few additions on this in terms of like crafts, because usually a lot of like gaming operates by crafts, uh, at least in a lot of studios. I would say uh, engineering is actually a craft way. It's easier to bring people outside games, at least if you think of like backend data engineering, this type of functions where the skill is more important than uh, gaming backgrounds. Uh, analytics, at least what I can see in terms of like data analysts, whether it's Sweden or Finland or like bigger players like in Scopely, in most of locations, they're trying to bring analysts just for the hardcore tech skills coming from 
Coca-Cola, Nestle consultancies and learning the game business. Because if you think of what's easier to learn coding Python skills or a certain business area, uh, probably coding Python skills are a bit harder to pick up quicker. At least if, if, if you're thinking of trends, that's one thing. Uh, also adding to what Michelle said around the culture, uh, that's one of the challenges that I have seen inside a smaller studio, for example, is that culture fit is extremely, extremely important, but it also affects the speed of the hiring because it's so, so critical that, say, all team members have a chance to meet the person. Now, all people in a certain craft and a certain function have to meet the person. And if you come up with a kind of your recruiting passion for structured interviews, scorecards, uh, as little time in the process as possible, speed and like all of all of that uh, things that are, we as recruiters are passionate about, I would say that becomes uh, that becomes a bit of a challenge. I, I actually also wanted to talk a little bit about you know what we're talking about uh, culture in gaming because I think that Nora mentioned something that I feel like I've heard many times that I you know I I, I can't uh, I can't keep myself away from commenting and that is that that there is a there's a laid back culture in in games development um and i can agree that it's a culture that is very you know it's it's not a stiff culture in the sense that you have to wear a suit and tie uh to to you know to come into the office rather that would be a pretty strange thing uh, if it happened unless unless you're maybe in one of the more corporate functions um but one but but to call the culture within games development laid back i think it's a little bit of a misrepresentation as well um i think that from from what I've been seeing during the past couple of years, it's it's a very it's a very focused uh, industry. It's a very like I, I've seldom come into into uh, a building where games are being developed where I feel like you know people are just you know hanging about you know taking it easy. I feel like generally the the cultures I've been experiencing has been like they've been open and they haven't been terribly focused on on kind of corporate correctness, so to say. But rather being very focused on on and having very you know creative environments. Um, so so that that's just like a, that, that's just a quick comment on that from my end. Thank you, thank you for all sharing those thoughts and comments. They are very helpful, helpful from my from my hand. Yes, Julia. Yeah, probably one last comment on the difference in games. It's a bit more cyclical. Uh, especially when you know that each game has a period when you build a game, when you release, when it's kind of live ops or it's getting closed or something. So I would say in games, in that sense, if you really follow what's going on in different studios, in different locations, you can also kind of time a bit better when is, as a recruiter, when is a good time to start approaching people when projects are finishing or when projects are closing. So in that sense, for recruiters, it can be a good way kind of to predict the market, what's going on, where can I grab uh talent because the games have their two or three year cycles yeah that's very true point actually too, yeah um because you do find in games that things can change so quickly uh you could be going in one direction and then suddenly a game's cancelled and if you're lucky you can actually move those that game talent to a different game or move them internally but you have to let people go and i think that's why you, you do get loyalty in games but obviously there are lots of candidates that don't sometimes get to release a game um, and they just have knock on, you know, bad experiences. Um, and that doesn't have happen as much in other industries as it would do in games because we don't ever, sometimes they can't put a game in their portfolio. Um, so yeah, that's a key difference as well. 
I'd just like to say from at least evolution's point of view, because we have a Sweden tech team who's right next to me, and we have the gaming, I guess, Sweden team. And this is a massive thing that's very different. Like, they don't have to think about, oh, a game got killed, boom, there's a lot of movement happening. I guess it does happen when a project gets closed down. Like, okay, there's a few people on the market. But sometimes when you hear, like, what Michelle said, like, if there's a team of developers working on the game, and then there's two things going to happen. Either it gets killed or it gets released, if we're talking, like, a premium game. And usually, if there's, like, a premium game, then it gets released. Again, after that, they're like, oh, Let's see what's on the other side, grass, you know, I'll look at a few offers, have a few interviews, but also on the flip side, if a game gets killed and you're like, ah, my baby, I just want to see what's out there. And that's just, like Julia said, cyclical. Also, I think we have like, when the summer comes, at least in Sweden, that's a time of reflection for a lot of candidates. December time, again, and I think that happens every couple of months, it's like a big tick. And that's what I've noticed, at least different on my side. Great. I think it's time to move on to the next question, which is Sinan. Sinan, what is your question and the context behind it? So my question is essentially, you know, it's about embracing diversity and inclusivity in the games industry. And, you know, what are the challenges and opportunities? Um, and this is what I feel like a pretty old question by now. This has been discussed for for all of the time that I have been working and why I bring this to the table now is, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's partly because of two reports, one report that came from, uh, both are from McKinsey, one that came back in 2000, when was it? I believe that it was in 2017, 2015, when that, that's titled, you know, why diversity matters that very much says that, you know, Hey, we can see pretty clearly here that diverse teams, um, are, are doing a lot better than, than very, you know, homogenous teams. So 2015, that's now what, eight years ago, um, just last month, uh, end of January, uh, last month was, uh, they, they published a new article that says women in tech, the best bet to solve Europe's talent shortage. Um, and that, that report goes a little bit more into the fact that, um, that, you know, as, as every recruiter in, in, in Europe can testify to, it's like, you know, we don't have enough developers, right? Uh, it's, it's the, it's the challenge that, that every company is facing, um, and what the what the article talks about is essentially like okay well there are two major drop off points for for uh, women when they're supposed to be entering the, the tech industry uh, one is just in in picking um, in in picking the the university degree and like focusing a bit more towards you know computer science and technical subjects. Uh, so there, there we can see a major drop off point. That's something that I think is a little bit, you know, beyond what companies can affect. But then there's another drop off point that says that, um, that says that as soon as they are supposed to enter the workforce, it drops down again. Um, so I guess that my, for me, when I look at these two, it's like when we're talking about diversity in the games industry. The discussion point is often about, you know, gender diversity. I, from what I've seen during my years, uh, in the industry, 
I feel like the industry is pretty good at when we're looking at cultural and, and ethnic diversity. Um, but where I feel that the, 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 uh, the industry fails is when it comes to, is when it comes to gender diversity. I mean, I think that if we look at the, if we look at the general balance in, I think both tech and in games, it's pretty similar. It's, it's essentially an 80% uh, men and 20% women. And I guess that why I really wanted to discuss this is that, um, I feel like there are, there's a lot of talk around this, but I feel like I haven't seen a lot of ambitious examples of trying to, of trying to do something about this. Yeah. I feel like there are a lot of companies that have some kind of target in terms of like, okay, well, we want to get to the point of having, you know, X percent versus X percent. But I feel like there have seldom been, been very, you know, practical plans to be there. There have seldom been uh, resources put towards that. Um, and that's just why I wanted to kind of ask openly to the floor whether, you know, whether at the companies where you are, there are thoughts or plans in terms of, you know, how you're, or, or even, you know, even goals in terms of this. Um, and, and also whether you have seen, you know, ambitious or, or, or even, you know, fundamental uh practices to to kind of embrace this further um and and i'll 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 stick with this to towards michelle who's been in the industry first if if you want to talk talk a little bit about what you've seen there yeah no thank you sinan um yeah it's been top of my mind and i almost made this my question for this podcast but you got there before me um and yes when i was working back at king you're at king now it was something that was always on top of the mind and that was nine years ago and there wasn't i didn't see the candidates coming through the pipeline then and i don't think it's improved that much in terms of gender um we were putting a lot of initiatives in place at that point and i think in terms of the games industry in what we can do it's limited to a certain extent sometimes i think it maybe needs to be at government level I know that we've got um, UK in the UK, which are really kind of looking at different projects and strategies to, you know, help at that kind of grassroots level going into schools. And there's other games companies trying to do these things. But I think it's educating parents. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I talk to parents or even children, they don't really recognize that games is a career choice. Um, they Most children love playing games, but are they talked about it at school if this is a serious career? And I was going back again, looking at the entertainment industry, and this is a serious business now, and it should be thought as of that now. I feel like it's come to that time where we should be taken seriously. Um, but yeah, in terms of every client I work with wants to solve the same problem, where you can put in lots of things in place to help the re recruitment funnel, I guess, with all doing that as recruiters. So you're looking at the job descriptions and how they're written, trying to make not have too many requirements on there because it's very well known that women will look at a job spec and if they don't tick all the boxes, they're not going to apply. We try and do our outreaches to try and also include a gender split and obviously minorities. Um, we put people through the interview process and we always try and have a mixed panel. I think we're all doing these things as recruiters, but it's how do we get more people into the industry in the first place? And I really haven't seen a, a change. Um, Every company is does seem to want this, even in the tech world. Um, I think a big area that you can look at as a business is if you 
understand what gaps you do have across the business. So if it's gender, if it's um, uh, BAME minorities, is it neurodiversity? Like what areas do you want to actually target and then have a strategy around that? Even if you have to fill non-developer roles maybe with female candidates because you like, look at HR and marketing and finance and some of these other areas that you can actually still help get that balance within a company. Um, yeah, so I think it's just down to, I don't know, we need to petition to governments maybe and get out to schools more. Over to you, uh, Julia or Nora, have you got any input on that? Yeah, I can probably uh, continue. Uh, I would say in terms of diversity, uh, we've been lucky, at least in the Nordics countries, uh, as Nordics has, as a market advanced quite uh, far away, both as a society, how things are treated, but also in terms of uh, attracting people from diverse backgrounds. I would say a lot of companies, whether it's games or tech, have been pretty good with relocation, and that usually attracts uh, diverse talent as this is a democratic uh, environment where everyone feels included. Uh, I have also seen more and more companies inside the gaming, both like Rovio, uh, but also Epic and Scopeland, Zynga, uh, having a diversity, diversity and inclusion roles uh, inside organizations that are actually sitting outside TA. So it's not only diversity that's high diverse, but it's actually something that's more strategic. Uh, I think Rove is the only gaming company in Finland that has this type of uh, position today. And then obviously a lot that happens, happens inside that you don't really see a lot. It's starting with leadership, educating leadership first. Uh, a lot about building aware awareness, um, educating managers, and then, um, as you mentioned, setting up measures and KPIs. What we are doing is uh, running internal service, figuring out like, where are we? And then you think not only about hiring, but also pay, attrition, representation, and not a lot of these different areas. What is there, like, uh, where we are today? Where do we want to go? and getting a leadership uh, on board first when we start coming up with initiatives. So I think like doing this kind of internal audits is something you would not put in a news article, but something that's a really important groundwork that I see quite a lot of places uh, putting resources into doing right now. Just one question, Julia, uh, the audit, like the initial things, like what type of questions are on that? Like, why is that helping the diversity and inclusion? That's a pretty big approach at least like what i've seen uh, internally looking into all sorts of areas both asking employees asking supervisor manager levels but also the board and the uh, leadership director groups of how they see things are and then uh, we'll start getting this kind of reports this is kind of this is our starting point and these are the specific actions we are taking and then diversity becomes a bigger uh, both bigger awareness, so we are not talking about job ads and inclusive language, but we are also talking about uh, other other things internally that can be equally equally important. So things that go beyond uh, beyond hiring, and I think that's uh, that's where the real diversity uh, comes in. How do we include people? How do we talk about fair pay? How do we talk about fair treatment when we already got the talent the talent in? What do you think, Nora? Yeah, um, when I uh, was uh, thinking about the question, uh, I was thinking about the uh, industry in general, uh, for example, how to increase uh, opportunities 
about the about the mother. I think, um, for example, creating uh, inclusive teams, as as you both mentioned, like game studios can take a step steps to ensure that their their themes are diverse and inclusive by uh, actively seeking out candidates from div- uh, different backgrounds and creating a culture of respect and ac- acceptance uh, as we are uh, making and doing so as recruiters. Also, one thing I was thinking about was uh, accessibility. Uh, game developers can uh, put on their input by making their games more accessible to the players with disabilities by incorporating features such as closed captioning, alternative control options, and maybe some audio inputs also. Yeah. Yeah. Those are my my comments on that that matter. Thank you. I see that I think you raised your hand. Yeah, I mean I think I, I, I think that it's it's such a it's such a difficult topic altogether um I, I i think something that you brought up michelle is, is actually something i've been seeing now at king uh i i've only been here for five months for everyone's listening but one thing that i've i've been very impressed with is kind of the the level that they put targets at for the different teams when it comes to diversity and inclusion now so so for this year we have a we have a we have pretty uh, like pretty specific targets that we're aiming towards. And I know, for example, that our early early careers team have a like 50-50 target, but you know, it, but when it comes to, at least when it comes to gender diversity, um, I, I, what I would really like to see from the industry more that I think would, would be a bit more a long-term investment for, for the good of all would be to, have a bit more, you know, more, more, uh, I would say taking the diversity aspect more into consideration when, when hiring for internship roles, I think that, you know, if we can get more people into the industry at an early level, like I, I, I think that that could be, maybe it's not the silver bullet to, to fix all issues, but I, but I hope that I would love to see more of that at least. No, I'm just thinking here, cause when I've done this podcast this is probably my 20th podcast now i've this topic has come up and i've actually asked some questions to two studios star stable and tactile games they have over 50 percent women representation so i just point blank asked them like so how do you do it you know because only 20 percent of the industry is developers so something's happening here and the vibe i got was basically making as appealing as possible for the women that are in the game industry to join that company whether it be making it as kind of welcoming as possible also both of their games are angled towards women which makes it kind of something that is more enjoyable to work on i feel and it's kind of very much a business case like if you someone's making it is also the end user it works out as well and one thing just on a separate thing what sina said like what we could do practically to like increase like just literally like more people getting into the game industry so at the moment if nothing's changed in the last eight years then something's not wrong. And I think one thing I've seen is just inspiration. Like if you have someone like a representative female who's in the gaming industry, rock star, coming into a university before people are like deciding what to do, then they can be like, ah, oh, there you go. 
that's possible. Happy days. I'll do it. But if you don't have that, then I feel like it's very hard to even think of it as an option, especially when you see, I guess, I feel like, especially when you're that young, unless you hear about it or inspire about it, or, you know, you have a friend or a family member that's into it, it's just unlikely for you to go down that path statistically. So I think the one way we can practically do it is, especially if you're a company that wants to improve it for yourself, early careers teams, the reason they have the 50-50, I think is because they actually have the power. If you just show up to these events, make it seem like it's a good time to work, you're going to get people have a chance because why wouldn't they? So I think that's one practical thing that people can do. And I think we've seen it work. So, I mean, if you are a studio looking to do that, it's just one thing you can do straight away. It's a long-term play, but it's definitely working. Lovely. Good timing to actually Juliet. Yes. Yeah, I think another practical thing uh, is to look in terms of like, we usually think of all uh, uh, gender representation. It's especially heavy in like technology technology roles but if we think beyond that i would say in the analytics already we think a much uh, a much much uh, better uh, uh, gender gender spread spread than also qa roles uh, which is in a lot of games if you think of this like long-term careers is where people start and then they grow into design into product into a lot of uh, a lot of different areas and those are also kind of a good a good starting point so these are also the craft areas where the balance uh, is getting, like, gradually getting uh, to a better place. I love it. Let's move on to the next question, which is from Julia. Julia, what is your question and the context behind it? Yes, my question, you would say, is on the practical side, uh, very recruiter-focused. Uh, I am uh, I think we all run into this type of situations. I had plenty of those recently. And I would be super curious to hear what do you do when you feel you're running out of a specialized talent and practically how can you help your studios broaden their criteria. Uh, I think background uh, for me is when I'm growing one of the studios, they do a very specific genre of uh, casual games that Roby is working on that becomes pretty tough at some point Well, uh, when the ideal candidate should have this genre experience and how we go about mapping those out, finding them and we feel there are no more of this. What do we do next? So I would be curious to hear like, uh, as you all have uh, a lot of experience in recruitment, uh, what do you do practically when you need to open up profiles outside specific genre, outside specific uh, area inside games. Michelle? Yeah, happy to lead on this one. Um, I think that I've always called it when you're looking for a unicorn, <laughs> uh, which does happen a lot. So I think that often, depending on ex how experienced the hiring manager is, has got the requirement as well. You have to go through a process of proving sometimes that that person might not exist and, and or even just showing the work that goes into finding the people. Um, so showing a lot of your sourcing data, um, collating market information and you know how many people out there have going to have this skill um, so I'd maybe spend two weeks of doing that work and then present that back to a hiring manager to say okay well we can carry on looking for this unicorn or but it, just so you know it's going to take you a few more months and this is a critical role that you need what are you willing to flex on you know what things could we maybe 
have we got anybody else in the business that can teach this or could we you know have somebody even external that could maybe come in and mentor on this area could we reach out to harry and see if he's got a freelancer that might be able to come in <laughs> or a consultant to sit with somebody we've already got in the team because then that will give them the ability to learn something new um but yeah and that comes back to our thing of we're very sometimes very specific about the certain skill set that we need and experience and at the same time we want to have a diverse workforce and like we're already making it hard enough to hire diverse candidates and then we put on all this other criteria um it depends what role it is of course i mean you find that in art um sometimes you want to find an artist and it's they've got to have a, a broad portfolio so they need to have casual styles and they need to have more realistic styles and are stylized and they have to and it's like you don't often find artists with all these different styles in their portfolio so let's just stick with one style or um, and then they might need to have 3d but they also need to be 2d concept artists and it's like you can't have everything so where do you draw the line so i think it is just an education thing from from us as recruiters, experienced recruiters, to to push back. I I think uh, following what you said, Michelle, I think that uh, I I think that you really uh, nail it with saying like it depends a lot on the hiring manager. Um, I I think that one thing that that you come across often is that you know you, you get a hiring manager who who essentially says that you know they want the candidate to know hundred percent of what's needed in the role before before they're even to be considered for the role um and i i mean in some ways of looking at it yeah obviously that makes sense but in other ways you know if we're taking a little bit more the human approach it's like okay well uh, asking the question back like okay well would you want to do a role that you already know 100 percent in and as you mentioned like okay well what if we could settle for about 70 percent of these things what if we could settle for something that someone can actually grow into as long as they have the right kind of preconditions to do so um i think that overall it's it's you know it's again when we're talking about about the industry it's it's a it's it's tight-knit it's it's small it's uh it's it's you know it's only been around for like what the past 20 30 years um so i think it's it's super challenging but i mean i think that that's also where you know we're in in our roles like one thing that i i found pretty useful is is using linkedin talent insights to just also, you know, help get perspective. Like for certain roles, it's like, okay, well, the person that you're looking for, we, with all of these conditions, we can find five of them, maybe. Uh, like in some instances, when when I pull those reports, you know, we're we're talking about none, like not even one person who is like, just what you're mentioning, this unicorn. So I mean, obviously, it's it's never going to be a perfect tool, but I think that that you know, it's it's again, it's just about you know helping widen the perspective yeah i think just to add to that where you're saying if somebody's only got 70 or somebody's got 70 percent of what you're looking for which is still great um i think that'd be a great aim and then if you were to uh, you probably have these we have a debrief after everybody's interviews and you can sit and you can talk about the strengths and the weaknesses and you could actually set a development plan for that hire because i don't know how many times you've found that yeah, you could actually help them to understand the development. And then once they've got hired, pass this feedback on to a hiring manager or HR or whoever's organizing their development and make sure that that's something that's set in place. 
so it doesn't get forgotten about. So that person is set up for success. I don't know if you've seen that work well. I've not necessarily seen like the long-term development after you've hired somebody. I can't claim that I have, to be honest. It's, I, I feel like now when you're saying it, it's such a natural thing to like talk about already early on. Um, but just as you mentioned, I feel like that is something that I think that it has come up now, like in one or two, uh, uh, processes where the hiring manager is just like, you know, transcendent in terms of competence. Um, but, uh, but uh, no, I, I think that that's a super, super good point. Yeah, because I think that our job as recruiters doesn't always stop there. I think that's the part of being in-house as well, because you do see people's careers grow. You don't just hire them and then it's goodbye. You see them in the business and you work often closely with HR. So I think if we're the ones that can say this was the feedback from an interview and this person's going to be forward because somebody just look after them and make sure that they get the the growth they need and the development in this area. So it's more of the candidate experience than overlapping with then the employee experience as such, that you actually making sure that there's a smooth transition. So uh, I can continue on this one. Mm, uh, yeah, um, in my opinion, uh, the main is the main thing is to look beyond a traditional sources. Uh, like like uh, within the gaming um, uh, gaming industry, we often look just on the gaming, but there may be talented individuals like myself <laughs> outside of this field who could bring valuable skills and experiences to the team. So I think we should consider looking to other industries for potential hires as well. Also, uh, a more inclusive culture can help attract a wider range of candidates, in including those from under underrepresented backgrounds, for example. Um, yeah, in short, we should uh, running out, if we are running out of specialized talent, uh, let's broaden our search by looking beyond trad traditional sources, rethink job requirements, let's focus on learning ability, offering some training and mentorship internally, and by creating more inclusive culture. I think they are a good action point to this uh, dilemma that we are struggling not if not daily uh, at least monthly yeah, yeah. I'd, se I'd second that because we've had recent success like we've had a very a few very difficult roles for example this was a 2d artist for one studio the other one was like a ui programmer or ui designer rather and with those roles we have to look outside the game industry just great artists elsewhere or great ui designer and just the normal tech industry analysts i knew was brick up before that's another one where it's quite it goes between back and forth where you can look outside the gaming industry and i've recently heard of some success of looking on twitter actually some people don't live on linkedin which i found out this year and yeah if you are a bit savvy you can look on linkedin instagram's big for artists and designers i find it very difficult to try and manage all of that but the people that can definitely that's another thing where you just find where people don't live basically like just maybe just think outside the box Julia. Yes. Yeah, so to sum up, I think uh, what 
I have tried, at least if there is a bit of a scale, say we need two, three of this type of role with this specific genre experience. I think what uh, helped me was to think of if there is different seniority, let's make sure that one of X has this, but then the rest can come from different backgrounds, can come from a different genre. If they're junior, they probably can pick things on the go. They can learn from the people already in the game, people already in the studio. So that has been uh, one. If there is like we are looking for multiple roles with the same requirements, at least trying to differentiate between them. Let's say we're looking for one unicorn, but the rest uh, can be a bit more flexible. That has been very helpful. Uh, another thing that uh, has helped is uh, lowering down seniority. It obviously takes a month or two of very dedicated sourcing to get there. Uh, but that's another way of thinking, hi, can we actually teach a person certain skills? What has to be there from the beginning and what is actually to be learned on the job. And then you obviously, as a recruiter, you're thinking of this cost, uh, kind of cost quality time triangle. Like what do you pick out of this? You can't speak all three. Uh, so that's another tool to, to think of and talk about with hiring managers. And another one that uh, we don't have in place really at this point, but something that I'm starting thinking of is also thinking of mentors, bodies internally. If you hire someone who would say we'll have to grow into the role. We obviously need to think of hiring manager. The team needs to think of an onboarding plan, but I would also like building a network internally say, hi, we actually have someone who has done this growth journey before. For example, we have a female leader who has grown in this position, who has a successful team today. It's someone you can talk to, you can connect with informally just to feel that you are not alone in this position. For for the future and like creating these internal networks and like mentor body programs is also a good way to think long-term. Yeah, I think that's a lot easier in bigger companies when you've got a startup, <laughs> that's where it's, uh, you got limited resources and they want to, you know, get the perfect option. Um, but another industry that you could look at is people from film. Um, that seems to be quite good for artists. Um, you mentioned about UI artists, Sari, if you want to look at maybe people that work in apps, um, especially well, mobile apps, if you're working for a mobile game studio and you're looking at UI artists. So I think it's always being quite creative when you're having your kickoff meeting with your hiring manager and then actually say to them, have that conversation, like what other industries can we find candidates from? Um, what are the main skill set? Like, do we have to have somebody from games and, and really asking them and pushing them on that? And like you say, Julia, if we can have somebody that's a bit more junior and they can be mentored and trained by somebody more senior in the company, then that's ideal. But um, not everyone's got the resources to do that, but that would be where you'd want to get to, definitely. I've actually just realized that I do this for a living. Like the very half of the question, which is like, convincing a studio to broaden their criteria like because what Sinan said I have talent insights you look you see two people you're like okay I could try and then like Michelle like we could dedicate two weeks show the data one thing I've started to do is just do a bit of a was like a new blueprint on this on that kickoff meeting I try to really break down the five top needs of this person and then like we all know you're not looking for someone with a 100% success rate because they're a unicorn and that just takes too much time, delays the project, not worth it, literally on paper. It will cost us money. 
So when you have those five needs, one of the big ones for me, especially recently, is just location. Like if they can be remote, based in Europe, this gives us not it's an order of magnitude more people to look at, but also more affordable. If they have to be on site, fair enough. We need to have some wiggle room on one or two of these needs. Like Julia said, body system's been very, very um, successful in a couple of studios, like just on a specific thing, as long as everyone knows this going in and they can learn quickly. That's another thing. A lot of the people or consultants I join, uh, start, like the interview is one thing, but then they start like, oh, wait, I'm doing these two extra things that I didn't expect to do. Naturally, this is going to happen. But if someone has demonstrated the ability to learn quickly, that is a very big plus. And that is something you can test for. So if it's a role where there's so much which need to go right, if they have the magic source, which is they're kind of switched on, proactive, they're going to learn quickly, that can cover some of those needs. And when you're talking to the hiring manager, it's just having that kind of flexibility. Like at least have the interview, you know, have the chat, because then they can sell themselves to you. And then you can have a bit of a vibe check. There's something called a technical test in when you're confused. Like there's a lot of things you can do where you don't have to shut anyone off who doesn't feel all of the requirements. Uh, Michelle, did you have anything to add? Oh, sorry, you're muted. Yeah, my hand's still up. Sorry. But I did actually have a good point when you were talking about that around, um, now it's gone from my head, um, around testing. Yeah. So if you haven't, if somebody isn't perfect, but they're willing to do a test, so you give them that opportunity. I mean, that's a great way. I mean, generally, I don't really like tests for no reason. So if somebody has got the experience in the portfolio and it just feels like a tick box exercise, I don't think that's maybe the best use of people's time. But yeah, to give somebody that opportunity um, and that would make them getting the job or not getting the job, I think that's a great thing to fall back on. One big thing for me was this exact scenario where there was a few question marks on the experience and they not only did a technical test, on top of that, they did a code review where they live talked about what they did on the test, had that back and forth on an interview and that you learn a lot about a person where it's very hard to find that out before they start and in the situation where the candidates don't have the time because they're too senior to do a technical test, a code review is usually no time needed because you can do that on an interview anyway. Most candidates I speak to, like 9 out of 10, are happy to share some code that they've done. And like, yeah, at least when it comes to development, that's a way where you can do the technical an analysis and make it very specific to the role. And again, just getting rid of those question marks because you're never going to get rid of all of them. But if you can do some, that's just an extra thing. Sorry, I went a bit over on that question. So we'll move swiftly on to the final question, which is from Michelle. Michelle, what is your question and the context behind it? Yeah, so I think we've talked about um, more junior talent and some things of getting more people into the industry. But my question is around senior talent and um, around talent mapping at succession planning. So when you when somebody walks out that's a lead level or not walks out but hands their notice in as a creative director or an art director or somebody really critical to a project like it feels like the it's all put on to recruitment to backfill as quickly as possible um so just want to know you know how we can better plan for this what's your experience of it how can we you know look at talent mapping and networking within the industry to to move quickly on these senior hires I'll ask Sinan. I think that's a, it's it's a, it's a tough one, uh, but I mean I think that it's 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 a bit of a gray area when it comes to succession planning, right? Because it's it's usually somewhere between HR and TA. Often, you know, it it would be a responsibility that 
I believe that many from TA would expect HR to kind of have kept the tabs on, but nevertheless, it often lands with TA to, to solve or figure out. So, I mean, I think that something that I think that a lot of companies need to get better at or, or HR slash TA functions at companies is to talk about these things. Um, I'd say at least that's what goes for succession planning, because I mean, I think if, if we're talking about, you know, this very niche talent, like one niche talent within games, as I believe that we all can say it's like game directors, for example, where do you get them? Where do they grow? Like what, what, what secret uh, portal do you have to go through to find them? Uh, and I mean, I think that that's very much something that, that many companies struggle with. But how many companies have some kind of plan or idea of like how to grow them internally? I would I would say that the answer to that question is probably just not enough. Um, when it comes to talent mapping, that's that's a whole that that I feel falls more under TA domain. Um, but it's also you know it's also it's also something that is tricky and you know quite resource requiring. Just in the sense that, you know, okay, well, say that we see that we might have a need of, say, you know, a senior C++ developer in in eight months' time. I mean, I think that everyone is already firing on full cylinders to find this developer today because we likely don't have enough today. So, you know, when we're, when we're getting to eight months away, how can we have landed in a different place than all of a sudden it's it's i think that that's really challenging and like say that it's a role that is more niche say that it is maybe a bit more you know a, a role that we don't hire for continuously but that we see pops up every once in a while so say let's go back to the example of a a game director then like okay well let's say that we we have an anticipation that we will need a game director in eight months we can start mapping out interesting talent, but the challenge there is also that, you know, we can even start contacting them and be like, okay, do you want to talk about a faraway project? That can work at times, but at times, if they're open to new opportunities, they will have found new opportunities within those eight months. Uh, so, I mean, I wish I could come and say like, oh, here's my solution to the question, but uh, I think it's it's really tricky. Um, I don't know, Julia, do you, do, you, do, you, do you want to add something to this? I did want to ask a hard one, so I'm glad I'm challenging you. <laughs> yeah, that's super, super hard. I think what I at least have tried doing in different places, not only now in Rovio, but thinking of like Boomerang is, uh, because gaming is such a small industry, you would also kind of know who has been alumni, who has went to different places, started new studios, started new projects. And every time you have something coming up, can you think of them say, ah, can anyone that has been here two, three, four years ago in a smaller role would be excited to come back and take a bigger opportunity, take a bigger place. And then you obviously already have kind of a culture in there. You have a business understanding. You sometimes even have that specific game or studio understanding. So I would say working a lot with boomerangers, I haven't seen a lot of like success that I would say, oh, I hired three people like this yesterday. That's that's a much longer process, but I would say working closer with your craft leads or managers uh, trying to uh, say, hi, do you remember those? Would you be like 
take a coffee, check in, write them a LinkedIn message. I think that's at least one of the more like long-term ways of thinking of your alumni network. Yeah. Do you think that there should be more put on the directors themselves to have their own succession plan, to put that place themselves of like have, you know, have those networks and be having those conversations because they're thinking they might leave. So let's, if you do leave, you need to have your backfill ready. (laughs) That would be ideal. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Harry, I was thinking as well, this is an area that you could probably help out with if we uh, just, just plug the gaps with freelancers in the meantime, or so consultants while you are doing the search. It's half of what we do is when this exact situation comes out, like a critical role, unexpectedly hands in a one month notice or just randomly has a baby because that also happens. Like the, the thing that I think you could do proactively, which I probably shouldn't share because then we'd have less work, but I'll say anyway, is I guess... If you notice, like you notice, like if this person disappears, we are screwed. Let's, that should be just done on a monthly basis. Like, okay, we have this technical artist. He's been here for five years. He gets paid a decent wage, but we know there's some studio out there who just offering double if he really wanted to, and he could leave at any time. And we honestly, if he leaves, we would need it would delay stuff. Cool, we've identified that. He's not any indication of leaving, but that is a risk just because he's so critical. My opinion there is like, you need to start, hire someone, get someone to shadow him and just duplicate the person, or at least give him, make him less like irreplaceable, I guess, make him share some of those responsibilities. And if I'm thinking from a game director perspective, if you have a game director who's doing five jobs, maybe he shouldn't be doing five jobs, obviously sufficient, but maybe have someone in there who can share some of the responsibilities, bring some people up from seniors to like team leads, yada, yada. So just making people less crucial, which is hilarious because like, I'm still just reflecting on what Julia said. Like if you make the director have their own succession plan, I mean, if I'm the game director, I would love for me to be replaceable because then I have power, I have leverage. So it's just one of those, like the incentives I think are not there for that to happen naturally. Therefore you need someone from a high level or the TA team to be actively thinking about this. And it doesn't need to be a stressful thing, just be oh, we have that critical need. If this person left, what happens if the person left? Oh, we are screwed. Okay. It's just kind of like risk. I guess there's like a little risk assessment. It was, it's worth bringing someone in to learn. That's what I could see from my point of view. Uh, what do you What do you think, Nora? Thanks, Harry. Uh, this question was the most difficult for me. Uh, it, it took me like half day to get... <laughs> even something on the paper <laughs> but uh, in very short uh, uh, main thing was uh, to start planning early if it's just possible identifying and developing potential future leader leaders uh, internally we can ensure that they they uh, that we have even some uh, potential candidates to draw from then uh, developing leadership skills also internally and then uh, I'm, I'm, I was thinking about also focusing on diversity and inclusivity uh, when we have identified potential future leaders for for example these kind of seniority uh, roles it is important to consider candidates from uh, very from uh, variety 
of backgrounds and experiences. If we do so, uh, we prioritize diversity and inclusivity, uh, we can that how ensure that they are uh, drawing from the uh, that we are drawing from the widest possible pool of talent there is. But yeah, this is the tricky question for me, I think. That's one thing I like what you said, um, like when it comes to variety of people you're looking at, like one thing you could do while the person is still there is just have it as a trial. Like, okay, what happens if we give you more responsibility? You still have the backdrop of the person normally running things. Technically, that takes resources away from the main game, the main project. But like I said before, if the risk is that high, it's worth it. What do you think, Julia? Yes, I just wanted to chime in on this uh, looking at internal talent. I think if I look from a TA perspective, like a bigger vision for TA would be to own all employee movements because as a recruiter, as a TA partner, you are the person that actually knows most about someone's motivation, expectation, career progression as the recruitment. I would say event is the time when a candidate and a uh, a team reflects most what's my next step, what am I getting, but also like as a talent advisor, be there to look first, look and scout internal talent and then look out externally and always be uh, a person that says, okay, this person is we hiring internally and that counts equally as much. Uh, and that's kind of important as equally important and thinking like long-term, shall we rather move someone here and be backfill a more junior position somewhere else? Uh, instead of looking for this specific person outside directly. So always thinking, where is my internal talent first? I completely agree with you, Julia. I think sometimes things are siloed too much. And like Sinan said, it's like the HR's, HR's job. And I know at King, they think they had a talent management team um, to look at internal talent when I was there years back. But I think the TA can take on some of those responsibilities as well of you know, talent mapping within an organization. And like you say, we interview people, we know what their career aspirations are long-term. Let's keep a track of that. And let's say, and be, bring those conversations up. But yeah, I think it's just partnering a lot more closely with HR and HR turning to TA for that insider information that we've got on people and talent within the organization as well and drawing on that. Yeah, one big thing that I hear, like I speak to people and I get them to quit their jobs sometimes. So the reason they do quit their jobs, the things I keep hearing is culture. They're just not having a good time. Either Usually it's just bad management or way overworked and just seeing more product than people. This is something we all know you can fix. You just, you need to put the attention to it. There's, we've done a few podcasts on it. Like there's a way to fix that part. The other part is pay. So I guess being aware of what is happening, you can find out that information ask me i can just tell you like it's just you can see what the competition are offering and the third part is what michelle said like if you're having one-to-ones there's information there like if the career aspirations change month to month week to week if a baby's involved that changes everything knowing how that changes then you can get a situation like small giant games they haven't had someone quit for two years straight they are 80 plus people and i've asked okay why do you think that's happened and the big thing they quote is caring about each individual and they're matching their life purpose with, I guess, small giant games, if that's the way to put it. Just there's ways to do that. Sometimes someone's going to leave and you need to call Harry to find interim talent while you find the perfect person. 
Well, there's ways to avoid that by just being proactive about it. Um, that's oh, lovely. I think that's a nice way to close it. So I'll conclude there. Uh, this has been the Evolution Gaming Podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Julia, Nora, Michelle, and Sinan for joining me and providing their insights. Thank you, everyone at home, for listening. If you would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts or just want to chat, you can reach out to me at LinkedIn at Harry Foku. It's in the description, but it's spelled P H O K O U. Thank you.